Council. Uh, <coughs> good afternoon. We appreciate your uh, flexibility with our timing. Uh, next case is State versus Atwell, and we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chief Justice Newby, Associate Justices. I'm Mike Spivey, representing the appellant in this matter, Regina Atwell. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Ms. Atwell's goal or intent in the trial court was to obtain an attorney who would vigorously defend her at a jury trial. It did not matter to her whether that attorney was appointed or whether that attorney was retained. She wanted her case defended. She did not want to plead guilty. She did not want to take the plea bargain offered by the state. She wanted the case litigated. There were a number of issues that were important to her. She was concerned about the trial court's jurisdiction. She was concerned about the validity of the domestic violence order underlying the, the prosecution. She was concerned about uh, the issue of whether she had noticed that the order was still in effect. Um, all of these were issues that a competent defense attorney could have and should have litigated. She was not raising frivolous issues. She was not asking counsel to go off on wild tangents or unreasonable legal theories. And her problem, as best we can determine from the record, is that she couldn't get an attorney who was willing to do that. Now, we admittedly have a difficult record here because all in, throughout the case, basically, the trial court was not entering orders, making findings about why attorneys were, were leaving the case. We've only got two really clear situations, and that would be with the, with the first attorney who was uh, Clyde, I believe, at the beginning of the case. She alleged in a motion asking him to be removed that there was a conflict. The record is not clear whether that meant <clears throat> she had a conflict personally with the attorney or he had one with her or whether he had a conflict with, with another client or what exactly the problem was. But whatever it was, that issue was raised before the case even got into Superior Court. It was raised before she was even indicted. And no action was taken to resolve that issue until I believe April of 2018 after she had been indicted in February. She, in essence, renewed the motion in February by filing the same thing again. So you can't say in this case that that initial uh, problem with, with counsel in any way delayed the case because it came up and was before the court before she was even indicted. The second attorney we know something about of, of any significance, really, is the last one in the case, and that was Attorney Ballard. But before, before you get there, uh, my notes indicate that uh, she filed a pro se motion requesting the first counsel, Clow, this was in February of 2018, to be removed alleging conflict of interest under the Americans with Disabilities Act. What does that mean? I do not know what that means, Your Honor. I mean, I can, I can speculate, but I don't think that has an impact on the question of whether she ultimately forfeited her right to counsel. We can't allow defendants to come in and, and frustrate the right, uh, the purpose of the right to counsel by insisting that the court accept wholly 
unreasonable or frivolous legal positions. And an example of that that the court has seen a lot of times is when somebody comes in and says, look, I've declared myself to be a sovereign country and you have no jurisdiction to try me. And they won't engage with the court about counsel. They won't do anything except repeatedly insist that the court has no authority over them. That's very different from an ill-educated defendant believing something like, for example, that the American Disabilities Act applies in some way. Counsel can straighten them out about that. The court can straighten them out about that. It doesn't impair the court's ability to deal with the issue of counsel, and it doesn't impair the, the, the court's ability to move the case to a conclusion. So I, I don't think the fact that she filed motions that may not have absolutely sound legal grounds is, is a ground for denying her or declaring that she's forfeited the right to counsel. Now, apart from that, with, with regard to the other counsel in the case, we don't really have anything clear-cut about why they left the, the, the case. And the fact that we don't highlights one of the problems in these, in these forfeiture cases. What you're confronted with here, and what Judge Wood was confronted with, is a record where counsel has been removed or has withdrawn but there was never a motion filed by counsel saying, here's why I want to withdraw from this case. Here's what the grounds for permitting me to withdraw are. There was never an order entered prior to Judge Wood's order where the court found facts about the defendant's conduct, where the court found facts about why counsel was being allowed to withdraw. So when the case comes before Judge Wood several judges later, Judge Wood knows nothing of record about what has transpired on those further occasions where counsel was changed. You know, we're, we're very careful in cases where we're talking about whether a defendant made a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary waiver of counsel. We've got a form to follow. We have a, 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 a ritual, if you want to call it, that we go through so that at a specific point in time, it is clear in the record where judge after judge in the trial court can see it and the appellate courts can see it that the defendant made a knowing, intelligent, voluntary waiver. Forfeiture doesn't happen that way. Forfeiture evolves over a period of time. And if the trial court is not going to enter orders, finding facts and tracking that, what's going on with regard to counsel throughout the case, you're left with a trial judge sitting there at some point, often months down the road, who doesn't really know what has happened at, at prior court appearances with this defendant. And you're certainly left when you get in the appellate courts, as we are now, with a record that says, well, why did this happen? And we don't take away a defendant's constitutional right to counsel because we don't know what happened. We have to see that the defendant engaged in egregious misconduct and that that conduct resulted in, obstructed or delayed the trial court in, in bringing this matter to trial. And that's not the case here. If you look first at Ms. Atwell's conduct, there's nothing in her conduct and there's nothing in Judge Wood's ultimate order that constitutes egregious conduct. When you come right down to the nuts and bolts of, of, of Judge Wood's order, he basically said, when I look at her conduct, I find she had unreasonable expectations and therefore she's obstructed and delayed the trial. Well, we, she went through a total of five, I think. That's correct. Is that correct? 
At some point, does the process of allowing the appointment of counsel, asking that they be removed, and having something like that happen, happened several times with, without any like disruptive yelling type conduct in the courtroom can just the sheer number of attorney changes at some point constitute egregious delay justice Irvin, I suppose. And, and i'm asking that in the abstract really rather than on the facts of this case because i know what your answer is going to be about the facts of the case you've already had it in your brief I think I think possibly in the abstract, if, if you got to say attorney number thirty-five, somebody's going to say, you know what, we're done here. But 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 I, the reality is, if you've had thirty-five attorneys, it's not how many attorneys you've had; it's the reason they left the case. If you've got thirty-five attorneys that all left the case, either withdrew or were removed at the request of the defendant, for good reason, for good legitimate reasons then the defendant has not engaged in misconduct. They have not forfeited the right to counsel. So it's never going to be a question of simply counting lawyers and saying, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna say you can forfeit if you've had X number of lawyers. It is always gonna be a question of why is this happening? What are the reasons that counsel is getting out of this case? And, and we come back there to what we need to have the trial court doing is making these findings a fact every time the issue of counsel comes up. We need defense counsel filing written motions as they're supposed to be doing if they're going to withdraw so that you've got things in the record that show you what's going on with regard to counsel and neither the trial court nor the appellate courts are left to speculate or guess at what happened. I think that your brief maybe somewhat touched on this, but I um, want to ask whether in your view there's a difference between waiving your right to appointed counsel versus um, or, or I'm sorry, forfeiting your right to appointed counsel versus forfeiting your right to counsel entirely? And, and if so, um, where are the standards for what, you, what constitutes a forfeiture of appointed counsel? I don't see that there is any difference. It doesn't matter whether counsel is retained or appointed. A defendant either has the constitutional right to counsel or they have engaged in misconduct that results in forfeiture of that right. It's, it's, it's a light switch, it's on or it's off. You've either got the right or you've engaged in conduct that has forfeited that right. There's not a middle ground there and it doesn't matter whether counsel is retained or whether counsel is appointed. Now, a difference that occurs is if, if you have, and, and we can take the facts of this case, suppose that Ms. Atwell had plenty of money and was able to retain lawyers. If she went out and retained five or 10 lawyers and she changed those lawyers, she fired lawyers because she didn't think they were being aggressive enough and she didn't think they were defending her case, the court would never get involved in it. The court would never say a word unless it got to the point where it was delaying the court because she's showing up not ready for trial and doesn't have a lawyer. But other than that, the court, the court doesn't care what her relationship with her attorney is if she can pay for her own attorney. An appointed, uh, a client with an appointed attorney is doing <coughs> They're not going to have, they have to take what the court gives them. And if there is a problem, they have to come to the court and say, here's what the problem is. I want a different attorney. The court is at a, in a position at that point to determine whether it is appropriate to give them another lawyer or not. And the court certainly is not going to be engaged in, in just because the defendant wants another lawyer, giving them another lawyer. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, though, 
because you have an appointed attorney does not place you on a different footing and say you can't argue with your lawyer. You have to accept whatever your lawyer wants to do and sit by as a passive person in this case. You have the same rights that somebody retaining counsel does to control the objectives of the litigation, to communicate with and talk to your attorney about trial strategy and different issues you want pursued, and to disagree with your attorney. It is only, only when appointed counsel reaches the point where they are unable to communicate effectively with their client and they have irreconcilable differences that the appointed attorney needs to be coming in and saying, I want to withdraw from this case. Because they don't have legitimate grinds to withdraw just because the client is difficult, just because they're having communication problems. Every trial lawyer has dealt with difficult clients. It's one of the skills you've got to have. So the rights are the same, whether it's, it's private or appointed. The, the nature of the right and the client's ability to control the litigation don't change. Help us look at this case through the prism of the Simpkins case, uh, which is a relatively uh, recent case. Uh, these cases tend to have their own elements in terms of being fact-specific, in terms of what the defendant has done and how the trial court recognizes what the defendant has done or conversely has not done. Uh, how would you look at Simpkins as applying here in terms of what we have said needs to be considered concerning forfeiture and waiver versus the lack thereof? I, I look at Simpkins in terms of the overarching thing is, is a question of has the defendant engaged in conduct that frustrates, totally frustrates the right to counsel in the sense that they won't even cooperate with the court to get counsel appointed. Or, and, and this would be a very common fact pattern in these cases, is you appoint an attorney, they get rid of the attorney, they waive the assistance of appointed counsel. The day of trial comes, they show up, they've got no lawyer, and they say, I need a continuance to get a lawyer. The court continues the case. The next time it rolls around, they say, well, I tried to hire a lawyer, I couldn't get one, so I need some more time, or, or give me an appointed lawyer. So the court appoints a lawyer. Next time it comes up, they let the lawyer go. And finally, we get to a trial date, and they're up there once again saying, I don't have a lawyer. And time after time after time, where you see this happen is when the case actually comes to trial. We are there. We are on a trial date. And the, the, the defendant is saying one more time, I've got a problem with counsel. None of that is here in this case because on this record, the state didn't even attempt to try this case and did not, it was not set for trial in September of 2018 when, it appeared before, uh, when she appeared before Judge Wood. She comes into court because at the prior session of court, a month earlier before Judge Layton, Judge Layton had, had um, let her waive counsel, which she had a right to do, but Judge Layton also wisely set the case 30 days later for the express purpose of her coming back in and showing the court what she had done about counsel so that the court would not be caught in the position of a trial date being set and her coming in and saying, well, I don't have a lawyer yet. So Ms. Atwell comes in in September before Judge Wood thinking that her task at this point is to report to the court what the status of counsel is. And she comes in and she explains, you know, I, I, I tried to retain a lawyer, I've been unsuccessful, I made payments for four months to one lawyer, and then he told me I hadn't paid enough and he wasn't gonna represent me, and now I'm up here, I have no lawyer, I want a lawyer. At that point in time, number one, her conduct is not 
egregious misconduct. She's not rejecting the court's authority. She's not uh, quarreling with the court or being rude or disrespectful. She just says, I want a lawyer. The case is not going to be delayed because according to the state, their sole purpose at that point in time in this case was to arraign her and set the case for trial at some later date. Hypoth hypothetically, if the September date had been a trial date rather than a date to report uh, so that everyone was expecting to go to trial at that time, client walks in or defendant walks in, doesn't have a lawyer, and does exactly the same thing. But would that difference, in fact, change the outcome in your view? In my view, it would not change the outcome on the facts of this case. Now, I'm trying to keep them all the same except for what was the purpose of the uh, court date. Right. I, I, I would say on the facts of this case, even if September had been a trial date, it wouldn't change the outcome. It wouldn't result in forfeiture because, because at this point she hadn't engaged in egregious misconduct. There had been no delay up to this point. At least nothing the record shows was a delay. So, so in essence, she's coming in and the case is set for trial for the first time and there's a problem with a lawyer. Nothing, nothing is there to say she has forfeited that right. The simple solution at that point is to go ahead, appoint counsel, caution her that if, if you know, there's a problem with counsel and there are not very compelling reasons for this attorney to get out of the case, she may well end up having to... Uh, appear and represent herself. You know, that procedure has been there. That procedure has been employed in several cases. And it's a really good procedure. And it comes back to if the trial court is finding facts related to counsel at every single stage of the case, and you are working your way towards that point, and you have a hearing where the defendant has been told last chance, then when that defendant shows up for trial and says, I don't have a lawyer, they're going to have to have some awful good reasons to get past the idea that they forfeited counsel. But that didn't occur in this case. And it's really, in, in a lot of ways, it's troubling that this did happen because the state was not ready to try the case. The state was at a point of simply setting a trial date, which was, what, I think two months off. It was like four months before they tried the case. So absolutely no harm would have been done by appointing counsel and letting her have counsel for trial. So, and that's the error that you're saying the trial court made here, was to not appoint her counsel at that hearing. That, Again. that is correct. And, 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 and I would say that the trial court's order doesn't support uh, its conclusion that she forfeited the right to counsel. There, there just isn't in that order what amounts to findings of fact about conduct that would constitute egregious misconduct. There's no finding in that order that her conduct resulted in any delay or obstruction of the trial proceedings or the court proceedings. So in the absence of those, the order itself, the findings of fact don't support the conclusion of law, and it doesn't support the court's ultimate ruling that she had forfeited the right to counsel. Well, counsel, um, I'm seeing here, uh, and it's in the record, quoted by the Court of Appeals, that the uh, trial court says in addressing the defendant, quote, the way you've behaved appears to be nothing more than a delay tactic, and that's what I'm going to put an order in the file 
and I'm going to make specific findings as to everything I just told you and to some other things that are in the file, unquote, is the fact that the trial court is putting on the record that there's a discernment on the trial court's part that this is a delay tactic on her part. Is that sufficient to support forfeiture? No, Your Honor. And the reason is this. I think it's perfectly appropriate for the trial court to say that it appears to the court that she's acting for purposes of delay. That's all well and good. But what the court then needs to do is make findings of fact that show that is the case. And the record needs to support those findings of fact. Are you saying that the ultimate uh, order that came out of that colloquy was not sufficient enough to support what was said verbally? That, that is correct. Your Honor, I, I, first I think the inquiry itself could have been better. And, and if you look back at the transcript of that inquiry, it, it really consisted of about three questions of, of asking her, well, what have you done about counsel? And then telling her, well, here's what I see in the record. You know, and, and in all fairness to the trial court, the trial court did not have the benefit of Simpkins when, when this matter was heard in the trial court. So, you know, it might have been looking at the case a little bit differently. But what the court needs to do at that point is to find specific facts about what her conduct has been, or at least the conduct that the court considers to be misconduct. And that, those findings have to be enough so that this court can look at it and say, yes, <coughs> the trial court is correct in concluding that this is egregious misconduct. And then in the context of this case, the court has to make findings of fact that say, yes, her egregious misconduct did, in fact, obstruct and delay the trial proceedings. And that's not in this order. So I think this order fails on, on, on both counts, and I think, in turn, the Court of Appeals was incorrect in coming up and, and agreeing that she had either waived counsel or forfeited counsel. So we, we, really, keep, we really keep coming back to the issue of given the impact of, of, of Simpkins, and, and really it was there before because, because the Court of Appeals has done or addressed the forfeiture issue for a long time before this court had the opportunity to do so. So let me ask you a quick question about Simpkins. Um, in Simpkins, we said that um, if the defendant refuses to obtain counsel after multiple opportunities or to say whether they want to proceed with counsel um, and continually hire and fire counsel and significantly delay the proceedings, then the trial court may appropriately decide that you're obstructing the proceedings and, um, you know, proceed without you getting another lawyer. Um, are you saying that even given that language about delay, that this order and findings is inadequate to support the judge's conclusions? Yes. And, and, and he, the reason why is Ms. Atwell did not repeatedly refuse to uh, retain or ask for appointed counsel. She, there was not an abject refusal to cooperate with the court about counsel. You, you're always, I, I, don't, I, don't read, I don't read that portion of Simpkins to say we're going to count lawyers and say if you have refused X number of times then you've lost the right to counsel. That's where you come back to the reasons really matter. And that's where you come back to, we need to see trial court findings that, that tell us what those reasons are so that we can see that that refusal is not based on something legitimate. 
Well, is there even any evidence about that in terms of um, sworn testimony or anything like that? In, in this case, yes. no. In this, in this case, there's nothing that says she ever refused counsel. Throughout the case, she was either asking for appointed counsel or trying to hire her own counsel. And that always came back to the issue of her concern, as it, the best we can tell from the record, the pro se motion she filed. It always came back to the concern that she couldn't get an attorney that was going to raise and pursue these issues she thought were important and were, in fact, important. I, I don't understand why a trial attorney would not have been willing to address these issues. So <clears throat> the bottom line on this case is she didn't engage in egregious misconduct. She did not delay or obstruct the trial court in any way from bringing this matter to trial had the state wished to do so. And so she did not forfeit the right to counsel and the decision of the Court of Appeals should be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Here from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Caden Hayes. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I'm representing the state in this matter. Your Honors, the Court of Appeals held below that the defendant here waived and or forfeited the right to counsel. Both of those conclusions were correct. On August 21st of 2019, defendant signed and the court countersigned a valid waiver of assigned counsel, her fourth in this case. Around one month later, on 16 September 2019, the court held a hearing to discuss the attorney issue. They asked her what she had been doing to obtain counsel and if there had been any update on this status. She responded that she thought that an attorney would take payments and <coughs> turned out that attorney wouldn't. The court reviewed the record and saw this was not the first time that she had been unable to procure private attorneys. Indeed, this was the fourth time, or at least the third time. Um, and presumably, they all go back to this, this issue of financial uh, ability to do so. And so the court rejected her request to appoint new counsel, and indeed later found that she had forfeited that right. The Court of Appeals has long held in several cases that the decision to not appoint counsel when there is a valid waiver on the books is reviewed for an abuse of discretion as to whether there was good cause to revoke that waiver. And indeed, it's hard to say that the court here abused that discretion. It is, and, and this court hasn't expressly adopted that test, but it should take the opportunity to do so today. It strikes a right balance between the important need of the right to counsel and also the important need of a trial judge to regulate his courtroom to ensure the timely trying of cases and the service of justice to the public. It makes sure that a defendant can receive counsel, but also gives purpose to these waivers. Indeed, we had four filed here, and at least the first three, as my friend across the aisle pointed out, there was no discussion about reappointment apart from uh, one affidavit of indigency, which almost implies that as of now, these 
waivers just don't have a whole lot of meaning like they should. And we should fix that today. If we enshrine a good cause standard and apply it to the case at hand, it will instruct judges, trial judges, to make sure that they apply the right standard in their own courtrooms and can ensure timely trials. And, and taking that and applying it here, um, the, the judge was correct in finding that there was no good cause to revoke uh, this, this assigned waiver um, well, of counsel. In the, um, in the order entered by the trial court here, the judge concluded that, or ordered, that the defendant, by her own flagrant dilatory conduct, has forfeited or effectively waived her right to be represented by counsel. And so my question is, um, what in the, before the court or what in the findings supports that? flagrant dilatory, or as Simpkins would say, egregious conduct. Certainly, Your Honor. There was, in the history of this case, two years of hiring and firing attorneys. It started out when she asked for an affidavit, when she filed an affidavit of indigency on the day she was arrested. She was then uh, appointed a burning cloud to represent her in the trial. However, within a short period of time, she had rejected um, this attorney and had uh, wished to have a new attorney citing a serious conflict of interest, which I believe Chief Justice Newby pointed out seemed to be based on the ADA and how it could have applied to this case. Um, she also filed two written waivers of counsel and also, uh, I believe, asked for a continuance as well. And eventually the court relented and removed Cloud from defendant and then uh, appointed a new attorney, Mr. Dwyer, to, rep uh, to appoint, uh, represent the defendant in this case. Notwithstanding this new appointment, the defendant continues to file numerous motions to dismiss, a motion to change venue, um, all while being represented. And eventually, Attorney Dwyer is removed. And we don't have any information as to why. We just know um, that she had filed all these motions and soon after was removed. And there is a bit of a, you can make an inference about that they might be related to one another. Um, and once removed, uh, they appointed Attorney Reagan. Are we him. entitled to draw such an inference on appeal when the trial court doesn't seem to have drawn it in its order? Well, Your Honor, I disagree with your premise. The court did make that inference. Uh, indeed, it said it was obvious to the court that the defendant was engaging in ob uh, uh, dilatory or, or delaying conduct. And so I think that is part of this, uh, I don't know, tapestry of like what had happened. And so by maybe not explicitly on this, but I think it plays into the general. Well, I think we can all agree that a, a little bit more explicitness would have probably saved us all a lot of trouble. <laughs> Your Honor, I think the, the order as it stands is still sufficient to find a, a finding of forfeiture, um, given Simpkins, um, which, which I will uh, address shortly. I, this, we, we move on to attorney number three. And um, soon after, she asks to, uh, she, she removes, she files another waiver of counsel. She gets removed, and around a month later, she refiles for a new affidavit of indigency, and we get a fourth attorney on this, Attorney Porter, and then Attorney Porter's removed and about a couple months later, and we get Attorney Ballard, and now we're in 2019 when an arrest had occurred in middle of 2017, all by defendants repeatedly hiring and effectively firing attorneys. Well, except that for some of those, we just don't know, right? I mean, the trial court doesn't explain and the trial court says, though the record in the order, um, though the record is somewhat unclear as to the reasons for discharge, and, and you would, if, if we're examining whether or not there are grounds for forfeiture, so whether or not there's egregious behavior that 
that justifies the forfeiture of a constitutional right, it, it, we can't infer from the lack of any inform, information that it was her fault that these attorneys could no longer represent her. They could have withdrawn because of the press of other work. They could have withdrawn because they took a new job. We just don't know, right? Well, Your Honor, I have kind of two disagreements there. I mean, one, the trial judge said that we know at least two, probably three, were her conduct. Um, and that comes from the, the hearing itself, where she talked about how two of the attorneys, and likely the third, um, were all her conduct causing this to break down. And as for um, this court reviewing inferences, I think it's important that in Simpkins, they operated, this court operated without a formal order or findings of fact, and noted in footnote three that if there was such an order and there were such finding of facts, they would be binding here if supported by competent evidence. And as I've outlined and as the, my, my friend across the aisle has also outlined, there is competent evidence here to say that she was engaging in dilatory action. So this court doesn't need to go down the inference route. The trial judge already did, and we're supposed to give them deference on that distinction. It is their responsibility to view their courtroom, and indeed, they're in the best position to do so. And so we end up with this order. Um, well, and, and when, let, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when the court says in his, in his order that it is obvious to the court that her conduct is nothing more than a delay tactic, if, if the court has to resort to saying it is obvious, doesn't that almost mean on the face of it that there's no evidence about it? There's no evidence as to the... As to whether it's a delay tactic or what it is. The I reasons think, for, for changing attorneys or whatever happened that we don't know. I think, Your Honor, that this, when the court was saying it was obvious that this was just, uh, all of this was a delay tactic. It was so obvious to the court that she was just seeking to kick the can down the road. Well, he, I mean, he said that to her in, in, the, in the transcript of that hearing, and she didn't say that's right or she didn't deny it. She just said, he ended up saying, do you understand? And she said, yes, sir. Um, and so it, it just seems like, I'm just wondering why this isn't sort of more run-of-the-mill difficulties with lawyers than the kind of egregious conduct that we talked about in Simpkins where the kind of things that were, that were referred to in the opinion there were things like evasive and bizarre answers, refusal to answer questions and declare that the trial court had no authority to over her, um, or to refuse to acknowledge um, that she understood anything or answering in contradictory ways, yelling obscenities, otherwise being disruptive, refusing to engage appropriately. Um, those kind of things just didn't happen here, correct? Well, Your Honor, there's Simpkins uh, kind of bifurcates what could count as forfeiture conduct, right? There is the abuse that you kind of discussed right there, which was, you know, I don't know, punching your attorney or, or anything serious, egregious like that. But there's also the obstruction prong. And that can encompass a wide range of issues. And indeed, there were, uh, Justice Hudson, you just listed off several in the Simpkins opinion. But that was not an exhaustive list. And I don't think Simpkins meant for it to be exhaustive. Well, I don't think so either. But, in, in, but the court then in Simpkins went on to say that if she refuses to participate in the proceedings and continually hires and fires and significantly delays the proceedings, then the trial court may determine that, that she's, the defendant has is attempting to obstruct and um, move things along. But do you think, is that what happened here? I mean, is, does the record reflect that that sort of thing is what happened here? Functionally, yes, Your Honor. Yes, there were appointed attorneys, and so there wasn't the direct firing, as, as defendant briefs point out. 
but it is a similar concept when the defendant's actions herself are breaking down this attorney-client relationship, her insistence on a legally weak argument, uh, and several, five defense attorneys, or, or maybe at least three, didn't want to press it. And she insisted this is the only way to go. Um, and it's notable, too. Well, but you, you, say, you say legally weak. I mean, it, under State versus Ali, if, if you get to an actual impasse over a matter of strategy, the lawyer, for better or worse, has to do what the client wants as long as it's not going to get you sanctioned, I assume. Uh, your colleague included some information in his brief about the relative merits of the two theories that uh, Ms. Apple wanted to include. Uh, I didn't see that subject direct, uh, addressed in yours. Uh, do you disagree with his characterizations of those arguments? I do, Your Honor. I, I Briefly before, I, I, I want to say that I don't think it necessarily matters how strong the argument was. The trial court found that she was not in, engaging in a good faith attempt to defend herself. She was seeking to delay the proceedings. But as to the merits of this argument, there was seemingly two. There was a notice question and there was a jurisdiction. The issue of can you, can you charge me for something I did in Tennessee and then what am I supposed to do about the fact that I ostensibly didn't get notice, notice of the order that required me to not buy firearms. Certainly, Your Honor. As to your second prong, I think, because that's the easiest to dispose, the statute criminalizing this behavior does not include a mens rea, which is what any sort of notice would go to. It reads similar to um, a kind of a strict liability statute that we have on the books. It's, it's uh, I believe, if my memory is correct, it says if a person purchases um, while under a, a protective has, that, has the issue of whether there's an implicit knowledge requirement been litigated to your knowledge? Not as far as my research could say, but I'd, it's an untested theory at best, and uh, at least especially from the state's position, it's a weak argument. Um, and as to the jurisdictional question, I think defendant's brief kind of put the nail on the head there where, yes, the firearm was purchased in Tennessee, but it was a North Carolina DVPO that was still in effect. And defendant had family in North Carolina, indeed, I'm sure um, she could have traveled back. There's myriad ways that this could impact the legitimate interests of the state, uh, given especially how paramount domestic violence protective orders are, as this court has shown in State v. Elder, or, or as discussed um, in that case. So I think both of those arguments are, are weak, and I think even the insistence upon arguing them uh, is certainly her right. However, it's her right if she wants to do it herself as a pro se litigant. She cannot force an attorney to do this. The attorney can withdraw, certainly, but at some point we have to look at the common factor here. The defendant went through five different attorneys. At least two, likely three, were her conduct, her filings, her, her pro se motions to continue, to dismiss, to change venue, all while being represented, her several files of, of ex, uh, waivers of assigned counsel. And so we're left with what is, the, what is the court supposed to do with this? Now, defendant argues that the court should put in another warning, I guess, and say, hey, next time you're here, if you don't have an attorney, um, we're going. And that's not necessary. I think it lends itself to a very slippery slope. If we're going to say that they need to give a warning, well, let's go to the next one and say, okay, what is the, um, what was the reason? What's the great reason that you have to delay this again, even though I gave you the warning? And 
whatever the defendant says, and then that gets litigated up here, and then we have to decide, well, was that a good enough reason? This in no way insulates or, or ensures that the trial court can act uh, correctly and to balance the competing interests at stake here. There's um, really no bright line test. These are somewhat on an individual basis, and it seems as though just looking at the math for a moment, uh, you said two, perhaps three, uh, for whatever reason, may have been at the behest or the um, <clears throat> encouragement of the defendant herself, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of why the attorney was no longer involved. Uh, but then there's the other half of them where we just don't know. Is that sufficient in light of looking at the math aspect coupled with what we see was said by the trial court and by the defendant in response to the trial court to rise to the great level of forfeiture or waiver when the defendant has constantly said, I want an attorney of some kind, and yet the trial court reduces that to saying that all of this, whether it's a withdrawal of an attorney, whether it's a conflict of interest, whether it's the defendant's disagreement with the way her case is going as handled by counsel, that this somehow all comports with delay tactics? Well, Your Honor, the trial judge is in the best position to know what is going on in his courtroom. And yes, the, the, the language here, she talks about how one of them was, she was supposedly paying. Um, I'm not sure which of those five I think it was, was Burning Cloud. Um, and then the two others were more plaintiff friendly. And so I don't think, and maybe this isn't where you're going, Justice Morgan, but I don't think there's a magic number per se, as kind of was hinted um, in my friend's argument of, of 35. It's all a totality. As you started your question, Justice Morgan, this there is no bright line test here. Um, and it's hard to fashion one, as there is myriad facts that could lead to forfeiture. Something as small, well, in a time perspective and a math perspective, small of punching your attorney, yeah, that's, that's probably forfeiture, or it's something more egregious, longer lasting, still the same end result. And so uh, the trial court here found that she was engaging in, in delay tactics, in dilatory tactics, and we need to give deference. You know, if, if we were there, maybe we would have come up with a different conclusion. I don't know. We weren't there. But it's this court's as its precedent has put out, to give deference to the court. And I think the most powerful example of that in this case is her trial itself. She goes to the jury selection. She, as far as I can tell, participates in it. State gives opening statements. They break for lunch. She disappears. And for three weeks, she's just gone. Now, that's not direct support of the trial judge's ruling here. Certainly, the trial judge didn't know that this specifically happened. But I think it's an important reminder as to why we give deference. The judge was presented with all of this, with the years of attorneys, five attorneys, and this argument she really wanted to make. And he saw uh, a problem. He saw a, a, a delay tactic. And it turns out he was right. We can tell after the fact that she abandoned her trial. Her sentencing was delayed for weeks, and the only reason the trial was even able to be finished was because she happened to be there that morning for the beginning of trial itself. 
it is, it is I think, a powerful reminder of, of why we give deference on these cases, especially why in footnote three of Simpkins, we said if there is a finding of fact, it is binding on appeal when supported by competent evidence. And I, on that um, finding of fact, a defendant in, in his brief argues that the finding of, of, of dilatory tactics or delay tactics, I think is what the order itself says, was a finding of law. And I, I just briefly want to rebut that and say it's not. There was no legal definition to apply of delay. It was more of a common sense understanding of what is going on. The legal question here is certainly whether or not those finding of facts constitute forfeiture. But we're not supposed to necessarily full dive behind the curtain and say, well, what really happened on those three? It's the duty of this court to review this case for competent evidence. And indeed, there was. We have, as I've said a couple times, there's five attorneys, all of this. And determine that's competent evidence. Even if this court, if it was sitting in the judge, the trial judge's seat might maybe disagree, that's still not enough. There was competent evidence that's binding. And that binding competent evidence leads to the conclusion, especially in light of Simpkins language of the hiring and firing of attorneys and the other delay tactics, um, that there was a uh, uh, forfeiture here and that is properly supported. I, I wanna also briefly address, uh, defendant argues that there was a no prejudice. Um, and I think that, that misconstrues the record a little bit. The record shows an ADA, several judges bending over backwards for years to give her the opportunity to have an attorney, to allow her to advance her argument through an attorney <coughs> or through herself. And it's went through four waivers of counsel, so many pro se motions, just to ensure this right was upheld. And eventually the trial court <coughs> came in and said, no, I, I don't think you're actually doing this for a good purpose. You're doing it to delay all of this. And it was correct in finding that. So the, the prejudice, if that's even necessary, Simpkins doesn't require a prejudice, it just says delay or obstruct, but putting that aside, it kind of can be presumed by the, this, this sheer delay. And you know, we can argue about whether this was, uh, you know, she wasn't arraigned yet until that September hearing, but that was more out of a respect for the process and giving the defendant the opportunity to get an attorney to resolve the attorney issue entirely before going down the route of, of calling a jury and getting the witnesses ready and setting a trial date. Indeed, if the, if the state is supposed to, in these cases, just set a trial date as soon as possible, even when there's this attorney issue, the state is gonna be out substantial resources when motions to continue come in right before trial, or the day of, or, or who knows. And it's, it's an unnecessary burden on, on everybody involved. Uh, instead, we should look, was there a delay here from her actions? And there was, and the court found as much. Would you agree that relative to Simpkins, that if we would rule in the way that you would have us to rule, that this would be lowering the bar as to the ability of forfeiture to be determined by a trial court? Um, in, in terms of like the evidentiary standard that a, a trial court must show before for getting a, a forfeiture issue? No, Your Honor. The Simpkins case was significantly less um, delaying, less obstructive uh, than we have here. Now, certainly in Simpkins, we had a, 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 I don't know the right word, a difficult defendant who was 
consistently challenging the jurisdiction of the court. But it all happened in a relatively short amount of time. There was only, I believe, one or two attorneys who touched the case over a period of, I want to say six months, but I, I could be wrong on that. But it was a very short temporal time, a very short amount of attorneys that touched it. And yes, he questioned the jurisdiction of the court, but he didn't do the things that Simpkins was worried about, of, of delaying and delaying and delaying. Of but in terms of the conduct, the conduct was more egregious in Simpkins and perhaps maybe a term you might have been looking for was the defendant was more uh, obstreperous, if that's the word that I'm hoping I'm stating correctly. But in terms of that kind of behavior, that was certainly more egregious in terms of the way that term is used in this format of looking at forfeiture and waiver. Uh, but granted then, in terms of looking at this on a case-by-case -case basis, would you see this as being a relaxation of the forfeiture requirement looking at all of the facts and circumstances in these procedural facts in this case? No, Your Honor. This is applying the Simpkins test insofar as we can call it one. It is what happened here was more than what happened in Simpkins. So there, there would be new relaxation. It would just be applying Simpkins to this particular set of facts. Um, can I just follow up on that? Because the trial court order in this case says that um, it appears based on her comments to the court that she has caused at least two of her appointed attorneys to be removed from her case. And so if we say yes, that was sufficient to justify a court order that she has forfeited her right to counsel. Then in a future case, if a defendant causes two of their attorneys to um, be uh, removed from the case, that's enough to be a forfeiture of counsel. I, I don't necessarily agree with that, Your Honor. I think it's, you're, you're reading this in, I think, a too narrow of a vacuum. There was the two attorneys that she caused, and I think um, defendant cites in his memorandum of additional authority, State v. Washington, that said pretty much that exact thing. And in State v. Washington, that was it. There were two attorneys that were, I think, withdrew on the defendant's basis, and that was it. That wasn't enough. But we have more than that here. We have the trial court detailing her pro se motions, her waivers of counsel, her continuances, even when represented by counsel, we have a lot more than just two attorneys. And we also have the much larger temporal aspect of this. So this is years of litigation. I, I think I was looking earlier and she, she was found guilty in January of uh, 2020 and was sentenced later that month. And then she was released from prison uh, in mid-June. I mean, this was a relatively minor crime, all things considered. Um, and yet, we, here we are, years of attorney after attorney after attorney after attorney after attorney. Pro se motions, attorney or not. And all of that kind of combines together into a totality of the circumstances test, which is, as Justice Morgan was pointing out, there's no bright line here, and, and, and we get to forfeiture. Now, to address whether two attorneys standing by itself in some future case, if two attorneys were fired or forced to withdraw by the defendant's action, that probably is not enough, standing alone, to justify forfeiture. But we have more here. We have a lot more here. Um, and we have a trial judge who scrutinized the record, who reviewed it extensively in his final order, detailing the steps that the, the defendant had taken and detailing the steps the court had taken to try and warn her of, of um, uh, the consequences of proceeding pro se and uh, without an attorney. Um, and so we're left with competent findings of fact 
support, sorry, findings of fact supported by competent evidence that all support a conclusion of law that she had forfeited the right to counsel. Um, and I, defendant in his brief cites two other cases beyond Washington as uh, slicing towards uh, uh, defendant's position and those being Patterson and Harvin. I just really want to distinguish really quickly on those. First of all, Harvin, as this court I'm sure is aware, uh, heard this case, the Harvin case, uh, I don't know, I think back in May, and it is the state's position that the Court of Appeals was just wrong on that. Um, so that aside, and the Patterson case wasn't a declaration that the actions in Patterson were not forfeiture. It was telling the trial court in the wake of Simpkins to apply a stronger standard. Patterson told the trial court to hold another hearing because there was evidence not on the record and to determine whether that hearing and combined with the rest of the evidence in the case was sufficient. So it's, it's not for the proposition that the conduct in Patterson was not enough for forfeiture, period. It was more of a tweaking of the review standard and sending it back down. Um, and so those cases aren't applicable. Um, Your Honors, this is an issue that trial judges face regularly that we have um, waivers of counsel that are filed and then disregarded and appointed attorneys that are being thrown around. And it's hard, it's a difficult burden for the trial judges to weigh these important interests. Undeniably, the right to counsel is an important interest, but also undeniably is the right of a trial judge to try cases in his courtroom. Applying and, and adopting the Court of Appeals good cause standard would help navigate this. It would provide a, a safety port in the storm. And defendants' positions don't help in any way to address this issue. But even if waiver and the good cause standard isn't appropriate here for whatever reason, she still forfeited the right to counsel. The trial judge made findings of fact that are supported by competent evidence, reviewed the record, and then concluded as a matter of law that she had forfeited the right to counsel. The only question before this court is whether, at least on the forfeiture issue, is whether those findings that this was a delay tactic and obstructionist was supported by competent evidence, and it was. And then whether that supports a finding of law that she had forfeited the right to counsel. And I think Simpkins is pretty clear that when you excessively delay your trial, as the court found here, that is enough to justify forfeiture. So unless there's any other further questions, the state respectfully requests this court affirm the judgment below. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Very briefly, I did not address waiver much in my primary argument, and it has been raised by the state, and I did not do so because this case is crystal clear that it is not a case about waiver. Ms. Atwell always insisted she wanted counsel, whether appointed or retained, so there's no waiver in this case. It's just not an issue. The good cause argument is something that was never raised in the Court of Appeals or in the trial court, and it is simply a means of, of avoiding the impact of Simpkins and saying, well, even if you haven't forfeited, we can say we're not going to let you withdraw your waiver. So that's completely inconsistent with what Simpkins has said. The issue raised by the state of, well, she did, did, did not stay for her whole trial. You can't forfeit counsel by conduct that happened after counsel has already been taken away and the court's already declared that you forfeited the right to counsel. You know, Ms. Atwell explained her reasons for that later on, 
The court made no findings about whether those reasons were true or not, but it doesn't matter because the court didn't need to make findings at that point in time. It was irrelevant because it occurred after the, the court had already ruled that she had lost or forfeited the right to counsel. It does not matter whether <coughs> the legal issues she was concerned about were weak or strong or where they fell on that continuum, as long as they were not not the type of thing where she's making outrageous demands that her attorney take a position that is wholly unsupported by the law. These were good issues in this case. And, and I lost a lot of sleep over the jurisdictional issue because I'm troubled by that issue. But here's the problem with it. I think it's going to be fact dependent. And there's no record here because no attorney was ever willing to pursue that issue. I think it makes a great deal of difference whether somebody crosses the border and lives outside the state 24 hours and violates a, a North Carolina protective order, and whether they've been living in Montana for five years and buys a firearm. I, I think the court's jurisdiction, how, how long it can retain it, how far outside the state is a big issue, but you can't do anything with that when a record's not developed, and no attorney was willing to do that, and that's all Ms. Atwell wanted was somebody to get in there and litigate these issues. For whatever reason, nobody was willing to do it for, and she's entitled to a new trial. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both. Mr. Clark. All rise.